You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 22nd of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. 14 more hours of fighting in Gaza until a four-day pause. But then what? Ukraine prepares for another winter at war and is meeting people necessarily a cure for loneliness? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Isabel Hilton and Steve Kinane will discuss the day's big stories and we'll have a report assessing how serious Slovakia's combustible new Prime Minister is about half the stuff he said he was going to do. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Isabel Hilton, founder of China Dialogue and visiting professor at the Lao Institute, King's College London, and by Steve Kinane, Europe Bureau Chief for the ABC. Hello to you both. Good evening. Hi there, Andrew. Uh, Isabel, for the second show running, we have one guest outnumbered by Australians uh, at this table. <laughs> I'm uh, being very brave. <laughs> yeah, you are being very brave. Um, but you are, in, I hope, not related news going to Toronto tomorrow. Uh, well, I, as soon as I heard there were two of you in the studio tonight, I booked my flight. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's probably Australians in Toronto as well. We do get everywhere. <laughs> Perhaps I should reroute. Yes, I am going to Toronto tomorrow. Uh, tell us why. I'm going to Toronto tomorrow for a bilateral between Canada and the United Kingdom, in which we will be talking about the high north and uh, security and China and all the sort of current items on the global to-do list, really. That sounds quite fun, because as, as the Foreign Desk discovered when we were at the Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik the other week, the, the High North is getting, well, all the jokes about Cold War really right themselves, but it's it's a thing, isn't it? It certainly is a thing, and in fact, I spent last weekend with a group of people from um, the Baltic States and Scandinavia, and the whole conversation also trended that way. So questions about uh, NATO membership, questions about Russia, questions about how security in the high north is changing as the ice melts and as Russia becomes you know, increasingly the focus of everyone's anxieties. Uh, and Steve, you have recently returned from somewhere cold, uh, at least, and becoming rapidly cold. And we will be talking about this at greater length later in the show. But just as a, a teaser, if you will, between this visit to Ukraine and your previous one, which I think was during spring, summer, maybe around June, July. Yeah, that's right. Uh, how would you say the mood has changed, if at all? Uh, definitely bleaker. Um, I think there was high hopes for the counteroffensive when I was there last in June. Um, and I think there's definitely a bit more pe- pessimism. They haven't made much progress, in, particularly in the southern front. Mm. And I think they're concerned about how many troops they might have up their sleeve for the future. And they're going into a winter and a a third year of this war. So there's a lot of challenges ahead for Ukraine. Well, we will come back to that one, but we will be starting in Gaza, where according to current plans, the guns will fall silent at 10am local time tomorrow. This will be the beginning of a four-day pause in fighting agreed by Israel and Hamas, during which 50 hostages will be, be released rather from Gaza and 150 Palestinian prisoners, women and teenagers will be freed from Israeli jails. An amount 
of aid will be permitted to be trucked into Gaza as well. In theory, the possibility exists that the ceasefire could be extended and further hostages and prisoners freed, though Israel is presently reserving its right to recommence hostilities once this first hiatus has elapsed. Um, Isabel, that line Israel is taking that we will kick off again four days on is no more or no less than you would expect um, Israel to say. Obviously, it would be a a major concession to Hamas if they said at this point, right, that's it, we've made our point, we're calling it off. Nevertheless, do you have any optimism that this might be the beginning of the end? Well, it is the first moment at which the Israelis have uh, at least conceded that um, that they can pause. I, you know, I I was listening to the Israeli statesman this morning claiming that the it was the campaign till now that had made Hamas uh, concede on the on the negotiations over the release of the hostages. There are those who contradict that assertion, saying that this was actually on offer some weeks back and and it was israel who didn't um who didn't want to pause so it's very hard to know how the israelis will play it but i think that given given that the increasing concern about what's happening in gaza mm. given that the israelis are likely you know the offensive is likely to move <coughs> south which you know was was touted by them as the place that the population should move to in order to be safe which has turned out to be only partially true at the best of times i think that you know they are going to put themselves increasingly into a position that is very, very difficult to defend. Steve, there had been a consensus that Israel had been less mindful of international opinion during this incursion into or assault on Gaza than they have previously, uh, and that Israel was, understandably enough, uh, much more uh, infuriated than it has been before by the extraordinary atrocities that, that Hamas wrought on October 7th. But nevertheless, do you think there is now Israel really realising that international opinion, perhaps especially American opinion, um, is beginning to run out of patience. I think so. And I also think domestic opinion has had an influence here, particularly with the families Mm. of the hostages. Um, Really interesting, I thought, that Biden, President Biden, spoke to families of the hostages before um, Netanyahu did. Mm. Um, So, yes, I do think um, that a lot of Western governments have been making clear uh, in their rhetoric um, how they want uh, Israel to prosecute this war. Um, And I do think if you look at the polling in the US, uh, both um, with the support for the war, which has dropped, I think, from 41% to 32%, that initial poll was taken just after October 7. So the support for the war and the way it's being prosecuted has dropped in the US, but also support for Biden and how he has supported um, uh, Israel has certainly dropped among younger voters. So I do think that has an influence. And I think there is a lot of pressure on Israel uh, at the moment. As far as this uh, ceasefire goes or pause in operations or whatever you want to call it, um, I think there's big question marks over it too in how do you get 50 hostages out of Gaza, um, because in a way, you're going to identify where you've been keeping them, and that could be where other hostages are. So I think this whole process could be quite fraught, and we we have a few days to see how it will unfold. But I think um, 
also you're dealing with Hamas, so mm-hmm. no, who, who knows how truthful they're being about this deal. Um, but I do think there's a lot of question marks about whether they can deliver on this deal in the next few days. Isabel, do you think Israel has done itself lasting damage reputationally uh in recent weeks. I mean, it is arguable that Israel cares a lot less about that right at the moment than it does about its objective of, uh, you know, extirpating uh, Hamas from Gaza. But has it done any actual meaningful damage to Israel's reputation? Or is it more the case that the people who disliked Israel anyway, now dislike it even more than they already did? No, I think it has done lasting damage. You know, I, I've had conversations over the last couple of weeks with people who would never have a, questioned Israel's right to exist or, or indeed the, the things that Israel has to do to defend itself, who are now, you know, deeply anxious. Mm-hmm. Um, many of them are Jewish um, and are deeply anxious that Israel has somehow forfeited its its moral authority. And that's been absolutely critical um, to the kind of defense that Israel has been able to invoke and command uh, over the years. And, you know, they've, they've, the Israeli government has always been extremely uh, proactive, shall we say, in <laughs> keeping a, a hold on what can be said and, and what can, you know, insofar as they can, what can be thought about Israel um, well before this. Mm. Um, I, I remember years ago um, at the BBC, we were uh, at, in a cultural program. We were about to do an item on uh, from a report called Bad News. Do you remember the University of Birmingham was to produce them? And it was an analysis of how Israeli spokesmen and Palestinian spokesmen appeared on television mm-hmm. uh, when interviewed. And so the Israeli spokesmen tended to be in formal settings, suit and tie, whereas the Palestinians looking wild and dangerous in the street. <laughs> um, and, and about Two o'clock in the afternoon, this was an evening show, there was a call from the Israeli embassy saying, we believe you're going to do uh, an anti-Israeli item on your show tonight. How did they know? What right did they have to, you know, intervene? But this is not uncharacteristic. So, ironically enough, an item that was about the unequal treatment of of Israelis and and Palestinians on conventional news got censored for exactly the same reason, in exactly the same way as described in the report. So it's not new, but it has become much fiercer, I think, in recent years. And Netanyahu um, and that move to the right has made it much more aggressive. Uh, Nevertheless, Steve, does Israel have any kind of case, and it is a point they make reasonably regularly, that there have been large-scale demonstrations against what Israel has been doing all over the world uh, these last few weeks, and that is obviously perfectly fair enough, as the citizens of free countries are perfectly at liberty to assemble to make a point about something or other. But Israel do make the point that the this point is only ever made about Israel. These people do not demonstrate in large numbers outside the embassies of, well, pick a few at random, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Azerbaijan, uh, Sudan, Ethiopia, or whatever you're having yourself. Yes, I think there's a fair point there, but also, but Israel's a democracy as well, and so it's probably held to higher standards. I'm not really sure I'm convinced that's what's animating <laughs> a lot of the people that are turning out disappointment that Israel is is not behaving as a good democracy. No, but but yes, I I think they do have a point. Um, but I, to go back to what Isabel was talking about before, I do think that there are 
a lot of people who are very strong supporters of Israel who are not happy with how they've prosecuted the war, but also the last few years with what's been going on in the West Bank with settlers, um, with Netanyahu um, undermining any hope for a two-state solution. So I do think um, that there are people who are great supporters of Israel who aren't real happy at the moment. I do think, too, there is a historic um, sympathy for the Palestinian cause, not sympathy for Hamas at all, mm. I, um, um, that is is broad. And I think that people would like some kind of solution. So, yes, the Israelis do have a point on that, but there um, there are people with who've historically supported um Palestine and feel like they've had Palestinians and feel like they've had a rough deal. And a lot of those people are out on the streets at the moment. There are other people as well with not as noble uh, motivations. Um, we know we know that. Um, but yeah, there is also people who do feel like there is an, an important cause there. I think also a lot of those demonstrations are directed at their own government. So, you know, you're, if you're marching in London, you're really marching um, to make a point to the British government and the position that it's taken. And that's not necessarily going to be the case in the other in the other wars that you've listed, where people don't feel that there's such a direct stake in the war. You I know, mean, you could make that argument about the British government and Saudi Arabia vis-a-vis -vis Yemen. You could, um, although <laughs> I, suspect, <laughs> I suspect that if you were to approach someone on a number 19 bus and ask them about the British government, Saudi Arabia and Yemen, they wouldn't actually know what, what that position was. Whereas everybody knows um, about this, about the Palestinians and Israel, and, even yeah. if they're not familiar with the deep history. And the sad reality of that is it's where the media is, right? Mm. Um, and the media has not been in Yemen and it's um, not been in Syria recently, but all of the media is in Israel at the moment and they have stringers in Gaza and the stories are getting out. And what is being seen at the moment is children um, suffering and dying in, in Gaza. And so that feeds those protests and it's the images that are getting out both through individual cameras of citizens in, in Gaza, but also from the media as well. And I think that uh, that is always the case, that where the media spotlight is on, it leads to more discussion, more protests. And of course, when it comes to you, when there's US foreign policy involved, that's always gains attention and scrutiny. And I think once again, with the case of Israel at the moment, that is another reason why there's a spotlight on it. And just finally on this one, Isabel, and again, it's an illustration of how much more attention this conflict commands, uh, even at the best of times, than any other on Earth. You even end up in the position where, um, you know, actors who express an opinion, and usually when actors express opinion about global politics, uh, we by and large ignore them, and by and large usually quite rightly. But this time, you know, in the case of people like Susan Sarandon, for one, who's dropped by her agency, uh, Melissa Barrera, who whose oeuvre, I will confess, a, a lack of familiarity yeah. with, uh, but has got in the soup for expressing pro-Palestinian opinions. Yeah. Why is this one such a live wire? Well, again, I think it's that the, you know, the successive Israeli governments have made it very, very difficult to nuance the position at all or to, or to express support for the Palestinian people without being labelled either anti-Semitic or... Um, 
or or pro Hamas, which you know that doesn't leave very much space. And people who try to occupy that very narrow space, you know, this is what happens. So I think that the capacity of the of the Israelis to exert that kind of pressure has been very high. They've been very willing to use it. And I suspect, you know, it's coming to, I think it's coming to an end. You know, if Netanyahu now were to come up with um, a, a peace plan or at least a solution for the Palestinian people of some kind, then he would actually gain a lot of, of credibility. But at the moment, you think, well, where are these people to go? They were told to go south. The fighting's about to go south. You know, this is decades of having nowhere to go. And and it's just you know the 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 idea that you can continue um, to claim that you're looking after a civilian population as best you can whilst prosecuting a, a very aggressive war. It's just running out of credibility. Well, let's move along to that other conflict. And Kyiv received its first snow of the winter today. A reminder, as if it were needed, that Ukraine will spend at least one more winter at war. On past form, it is unlikely to be the decisive season. The conditions are not conducive to manoeuvre. Though Ukraine's much-vaunted counter-offensive of spring and summer did make some progress, it was less than might have been hoped and likely at a gruesome cost. Though Ukraine's government has been cagey about casualty figures since February 2022. No observer imagines that they do not run into the many tens of thousands, at least. Um, Steve, as we were discussing at the top of the show, you are recently returned. We talked a bit about where you were able to go uh, and how the mood had changed since your previous visit. But on that thought, you, you did mention Ukrainian concerns that they are running out of people, arguably. What sense did you get of just anecdotally how dreadful the casualties have been um i I should qualify that in saying that's what troops were telling me not Mm. not official government responses because as you say they don't mention casualties but they've been attacking and we know that when you attack in a war you lose more men and women you lose more frontline troops uh and it's been pretty brutal on the front lines particularly in the south um and in the east as well um Avdivka at the moment in Donetsk, there's waves of Russians heading towards Ukrainian positions. I mean, that's where they're defending, but down south they've been attacking, and this is in what they call the Zaporizhia axis, and this was the key part of the counteroffensive where they're trying to break through to Tokmak and Melitopol, and the idea of what they were trying to do was head south, cut off Russian supply lines, divide them in in half, and um, and hopefully by cutting off the supply lines, you know, basically isolate the Russian troops and then try and get towards Crimea. Now, in that axis, they've only made about 10 kilometres. They need to get another 20 kilometres to Tokmak, and that's a very fortified city. Uh, and so they have lost a lot of um, people there anecdotally, uh, and they're losing their best troops. And what um, some of the troops told me, um, and they weren't saying this stuff on camera necessarily, but was that they were worried that they were losing the best and brightest and hardest fighters and the most battle-hardened and the ones with the most motivation and that they're then going to have to mobilise volunteers who aren't necessarily that well-trained. And they would have lost a lot of those troops who were trained in Europe by NATO countries pre the counter-offensive. So it's, it's a very difficult situation for them. And Russia almost has seemingly endless supplies of ex-convicts or current convicts or people that they can mobilise from the regions like Dagestan. So Ukraine has... This is how Russia fights, though. This is how Russia fights. That's right. And one of the things that you hear in Ukraine at the moment, too, is that they just have not been given 
enough weapons quickly enough. And I'll give you a really important example of this. One, uh, a commander who was on the Southern Front told me that his uh, unit was getting hit by um, KA-52 helicopters, the Russian attack helicopters. Um, the, the US sent ATACAMS long-range mi- missiles to Ukraine four months after the counteroffensive started. Um, the first hit that they got, within a day, they hit two um, Air Force bases of the Russians, wiping out an estimated 11% of their helicopters. They moved those helicopters further away from the front line after that. If they'd, if they'd released the ATACAMS earlier, there's a very strong argument made by the Ukrainians that those helicopters would not have been used to attack personnel and, and equipment at the early stages of the counteroffensive. So um, they're saying that they're getting enough weapons and ammunition to survive, but not to win. And they want more from the West, particularly from the US. And of course, that's now in peril with what's going on in, in the US political system. Um, Isabel, that refrain that we're getting enough to survive, but not enough to win is one that I have heard myself from any number uh, of Ukrainians over the last, well, nearly two years now. Do you get any sense that Europe in particular has got its head around that yet, that at some point Europe and the wider West needs to decide, do we actually want Ukraine to win this thing? I, well, I, I think it depends which bit of Europe you're talking about. <laughs> I think the Commission does. I, Germany is remains completely ambivalent, it seems to me. Schultz, you know, makes these declarations and then he kind of rows back on them. And part of that is that what's happening in the US politically is also reflected in several countries in Europe, including in Germany, where the German far right uh, is uh, making quite substantial political progress in three important lender where the coalition is in deep trouble you know in he's failing really to manage the internal con- con- contradictions particularly those between the, the the liberals and the and the greens so it's a weak government schultz is not you know he's not driving ahead with his promises to ukraine and Germany's, you know a very big part of the european offer other countries are absolutely on it, um, I would I would say Poland, I would say the Baltic states, Finland. They are very, very much, you know, kind of on the front foot as far as Ukraine goes. But you know, they still. The general pattern is is as Steve's outlined that things come too late and and in insufficient supply. You know, the idea that Ukraine has fought a war for two years without really adequate air cover. You know, particularly for an offensive. I mean, it's crazy. No NATO force would do that. Just to, to Why do we on, expect Ukraine to, to do that? To pick up on that point, that was something that the troops were telling me too, was that they did not have air cover. Yeah. You know, they're, they're expected to carry out a NATO-style combined um, arms warfare, um, counteroffensive, without air cover. And so it, 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 we've expected too much of them. Um, how, how really were they ever going to do that? And also... They were waiting for the weapons. They were waiting for the tanks for so long that the Russians had months to fortify that area down south south of Zaporizhia with anti-tank ditches, with minefields, um, so much so that the, 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 the maps did not foresee um, the extent of these fortifications. And the troops that I spoke to said, when you get to them, you know, there's concrete layers and there's rails and there's ditches and the minefields are, are everywhere and they don't necessarily have the equipment to 
you know, demine them on the on the go. So it has been very, very heavy going in on that southern front in the last few months. Just on the subject, though, Steve, of Russia at war historically, we were talking a bit earlier about th- this is how what they've always done is just throw massive machines of men um, and assume that that will win through eventually. And, and there are indeed very few countries that can compete with Russia when it does hurl everything at something. But something else that tends to happen when Russia goes to war is that it reaches a point where it cracks. There's a, a critical breakdown of morale. The whole thing folds up. You know, you get that plurality of troops wondering, what the hell are we doing here? Um, and, and the whole thing unspools. The Ukrainian soldiers you spoke to, did they have any sense at all that any of that sort of thing was happening on the other side of the line? Well, one commander told me, um, who was in there in the early stages of the counteroffensive down south, that the morale was weak with the Russian troops, but they had um, special forces standing behind those troops at the front line with guns pointed at them. A- another glorious Russian tradition. Yeah, saying, well, <laughs> if who do you, you want run. To be shot by? <laughs> yeah, yeah, who do you want to be shot by? Exactly. So um, the morale may be weak, but a lot of those frontline troops have no alternative. Um, so, and yes, you're right. What we don't know is that could Russia crack at some point? How long will that take? We don't we don't know that. I mean, there was a figure that I heard bandied around that um, perhaps if it gets to about five hundred thousand dead uh, of Russians, that perhaps that that is the kind of threshold. This is what some Ukrainians are saying: the threshold of where there could be some kind of internal collapse in Russia. Who knows? I mean, wh- Russia has not got a very long tradition of democracy. <laughs> some people argue it lasted about five years between ninety one and ninety six, um, and so that pressure that we see in democracies when troops are being killed on on a government just does not exist in Russia. There's no alternative. So how does it collapse? It's very hard to see that at the moment. Well, let's move along to something else entirely. And these are potentially heartening times. For those of us who never understood cryptocurrency, simply could not be bothered finding out anything about it, believed that absolutely everybody involved in it was a shameless grifter and or thundering nitwit, and yet remained vaguely resentful that these ghastly people seem to be getting vastly rich by doing little. Which is to say that the whole thing appears to be unravelling somewhat. Sam Bankman-Fried, founder of crypto exchange FTX, is looking at a lifetime's prison gruel. And this week, Changpen Zhao, founder of crypto exchange Binance, pleaded guilty to a bunch of stuff and may face similar. Um, First of all, I'll establish the table's level here. (laughs) Has anybody here... Either are you now or have you ever been a holder of cryptocurrency? Uh, I do confess to uh, being a holder of cryptocurrency. Really? Has it made you wealthy beyond your wildest imagination? Alas, no. Uh, No, it it goes up and down a bit, but I... I've probably forgotten the password to access it, so it may well, you know, disappear. It wasn't a whole lot of money, but I just thought, well, hey, let's see what it's like. You're not going to become one of those people desperately fossicking through a municipal rubbish tip trying to find a hard drive with $10 million worth of Bitcoin left on it. I wouldn't entirely rule it out, but yes, it wouldn't be $10 million. Um, And I certainly didn't make as much as uh, as Mr. Uh, Zhao, who is facing, he's going to be $4 billion less rich when he's paid his fine. But I think it only makes a little dent in his holdings. Um, Steve, are you are you a, a Bitcoin zillionaire well, on the quote? I, I love the concept of the question of whether I've held something you can't hold. Um, <laughs> so, no, I haven't held it and I wouldn't know how to find it. Um, so I, I've got no idea about the world of crypto. But I do share your... Uh, 
sentiment that it's probably a world of grifters. Yeah, enragingly, I do have one quite good friend who I'm reasonably convinced cleaned up quite spectacularly. Um, but because I like him, I find it difficult to begrudge. I just wish he'd let me know about it. It's, um, all, it's uh, all in the timing. <laughs> well, as you have outed yourself, Isabel, as the table's <laughs> resident cryptocurrency expert. Do you think we are on the verge of a great unravelling here? Will this be something we look back on as if akin to some bizarre dance craze? No, I don't. Um, and and certainly the exchanges have, you know, proved uh, slightly uh, problematic. However, there are other things going on in crypto which are, which are equally interesting, and that's the adoption by governments of mm. cryptocurrencies. And that's, uh, you know, that's a different kettle of fish and one there was a very interesting piece i thought in the in the ft this morning looking at whether the dollar could hold its own as the world's you know kind of reference currency if you like um which of course a lot of countries have been trying to you know attack the inhibition about it uh, or the the limitation on their capacity to attack is the strength or weakness of their own economies. So China would like to do more trading in renminbi, but it can't become a kind of global reserve currency of any stature unless China also opens its economy, which mm. it's not going to do. So so there are there are kind of structural limitations. But if, you know, if the Chinese central bank issues a cryptocurrency, which has, if you can de-risk the idea of holding cryptocurrencies and to some extent government issue, government-backed cryptocurrencies or pegged to the dollar might do that, you would then liberate yourself from the United States' capacity to take punitive action against you should you, should you make it cross. Uh, Steve, however, is a cryptocurrency banked by a government still a cryptocurrency? It's at that point a currency, isn't it? <laughs> That's a very good question. <laughs> I think you're right about that. I was heartened, though, that these guys got hit for money laundering um, and that was the fine about $4.3 billion. It, was, I don't, it, was, I, it was quite a lot. It's a lot of money. <laughs> it's a lot of money. I, I would hope that those kind of fines could somehow go into monitoring and compliance in money laundering across all sectors across the world. And people shouldn't feel too superior about money laundering not infesting other institutions. It's, mm. it's, not, it's not only in crypto. It's in banks. It's in casinos. It's in Britain real, British real estate. Look at how much Russian dirty money has been laundered in, in the property market here. It, I, I was quite heartened that they got such a big hit on this crypto firm and I would really love to see that money go into more um, scrutiny and compliance because there are, I mean, money laundering is is one of the worst things going on. This is, you know, this is linked to the sex, sex trafficking industry, all the worst forms of criminal behaviour in the world. And um, uh, any way that money laundering can be exposed is a good thing. Uh, just finally on this one, um, because, Isabel, because it is a, a currency-based question and it, and it does pertain to a country I think you knew well at one point, Argentina. Um, it's excitable new president, uh, Javier Malay, and grotesque crashing cross-promotional plug coming up. We will be taking a long, hard look at this in this Saturday's edition of The Foreign Desk. But his headline economic policy is ditching the Argentinian peso and dollarizing the economy instead. The US dollar will become the currency of Argentina, as it already is, of Panama uh, and Ecuador. Um, is, is that necessarily a terrible idea if you are Argentina at the moment? Well, I mean, I can certainly understand why you wouldn't be terribly attached to the peso with uh, inflation 
running at 140 plus um, percent. But it has been sort of tried twice before. Mm. The military dictatorship pegged the... I can't remember what it was called then, peseta, something, you know, whatever they, they it was. They pegged it to the dollar. Pegged it to the dollar. Um, and the result was, you know, the local currency became pretty strong because it was pegged to the dollar. So Argentinians went out and bought yachts and, you know, had a great time at the Ritz <laughs> in London. And, you know, the deficit built and built and built until it, 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 it exploded. The next person to try it was Menem, who actually legally he passed a law saying that the peso was at par with the dollar and people started saving in pesos because why wouldn't you? It was, you know, de facto a strong currency until the same thing happened. It, you know, the deficit built up and they won overnight. They closed the doors of the banks. People lost all their savings. By the time they had access to them again, they were worth, you know, a third of what they had been. So the history of trying to solve Argentina's extraordinary economic problems by attaching yourself to the greenback has had mixed success. And Millet's problem is even worse. In order to dollarize the Argentine economy, you have to have some dollars. (laughs) (laughs) And he ain't got no dollars. You know, he's he's got, you know, he owes 44 billion to the IMF. You know, the, 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 the cupboard is bare. So it, it would, this is magical thinking, really. And um, I, who knows how the people will respond to being disappointed in the latest magician. I want to know who he's seeking advice on on this issue because it's been reported that Malay in 2017 hired a medium to mm. talk to his dead dog, Conan. Conan, yes. yes Conan the Mastiff. Who's he, been cloned. Who is described as one of his confidants. But his living dogs are at least named after I hope this is explored so, on your so weekend so, special. We, we, we will be getting into that, his I promise you. His four living dogs are all clones of Conan. Uh, what could go wrong? We do, we're just enriching your program. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's all on the foreign desk uh, this Saturday <laughs> at midday. But finally, on today's show, uh, devoted listeners to the Daily, like there are any other kind and so forth, will recall that we recently contemplated the World Health Organization's assertion that loneliness had become a global health concern. Today, we turn to one effort to combat this in California. Inevitably, a social club has been launched specifically to cure loneliness by introducing folk to each other. A monthly fee of $200, which is nearly an afternoon's rent in San Francisco, gets you invited to such things as, it says here, craft workshops, karaoke nights, and other contrived merriments that the basically well-adjusted person would cheerfully spend $400 a month to avoid. Um, are either of us tempted by any of this? Not wildly. I'm, uh, what puzzles me about this story is that how is it really different from belonging to any other club? This is what I wondered. This is this is basically a private members club. It's a club. Yeah, and um, because it's in California, I hate the idea of the love bombing that would be going on as you walk in the door. It'd be ghastly. It'd be like an Anthony Robbins seminar. (laughs) I think you take the groucho view. You know, (laughs) I I wouldn't belong to any club that would have me. Well, see, the the thing is, this is. This is missing the point, it seems to me, of a private members club because, and I will confess that I was for a period a member of one such establishment here in London, and to me, the appeal of it was there was almost never anybody else in it. That's, that's, <laughs> was that the Athenaeum, by the uh, No, it, it wasn't. I, they won't let me into the Athenaeum. I don't have a tie. Um, but that's, that's the appeal, isn't it? Uh, of being able to go somewhere and be alone. Yeah, um, I don't know because I'm not a member of a club. But I just, just I would just go to the pub. I mean, I'm like 
whatever works, but it is a money-making enterprise, right? And so it's found a market and the marketplace is loneliness and it's been established and they're trying to make some money out of it. And if it helps people, I'm okay with it, but I'm not signing up. I'd rather just go to the pub. Because the point I made when we previously discussed this, um, Isabel, and you, and you talk about this as a money-making exercise, Steve, and that's doubtless the idea, but reality tells us that the way people make money... Um, is by actually selling loneliness. We, we pay premiums to get away from other people. It's why people pay to sit up the front in the aeroplane. There's fewer <laughs> people there. Like, you know, it's, it's why people spend extra money to live by themselves so they don't have to deal with flatmates. <laughs> Nobody wants this. Well, uh, yeah, except that, you know, as we know, loneliness is, you know, is now being touted as a serious uh, problem for health. But the other problem that I have with this, if it's addressing loneliness and the fact that that the number of households in the United States occupied by one person mm -hmm. has gone way up. If you actually look at the figures, those uh, those numbers have risen in the over 60s for rather obvious reasons. A partner's died or, you know, older people tend to be Or they uh, just got alone. completely bloody sick of the person they'd been living with for decades. That, that could also be true. Uh, but this club seems to be for the just over 30s and the, uh, and the explanation was that somehow loneliness strikes very hard when you're 30. I don't remember that well, at all. But Nor do I, I don't think, but Steve, is there a case there? That, 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 and their argument is that this is the point in people's lives in which a lot of those, I, I guess, social networks that are attached to childhood, your school, sports clubs, etc., that they do start to fall away from you as, you as you make your way into adulthood. Well, I think you can still play sport after 30, can't you? I, mean, I couldn't come play on. it before I was 30. <laughs> <laughs> but what you were, what you were referencing anyway. before about maybe there are... There's a reason why these people are, are alone and that people don't, want to, <laughs> people don't want to hang out with them. So does that mean we're now ghettoizing people who don't want to hang out, people don't want to hang out with all in one place? This sounds like it could be a nightmare. So basically we're sceptical about being charged $200 a month to hang out with a bunch of moping deadbeats that nobody wants to be mates with. Is, is, that, is, is that what we're saying here? It's certainly what I, it's a pretty harsh Australian judgment. But, um, <coughs> we're, we're, we're getting, a plain, I'm we're strongly a, getting the impression you're not going to sign up. We're, we're a plain speaking people, Isabel. Uh, and, and on that thought, uh, and I, I await the emails of complaint, uh, Isabel Hilton and Steve Kinane, thank you both for joining us. Finally on today's show, Slovakia's newly elected populist Prime Minister Robert Fico has yet to deliver on his controversial pledges to stop military support for Ukraine and shield Slovakia from pernicious Western influence. But there are already signs that his fourth go in office is not going to be entirely trouble-free. Earlier this month, Fitzo posted a video to his Facebook page in which he railed against enemy media. Hi, Robert, if you're listening, singling out four outlets in particular. He then issued an official press release saying that these outlets would no longer be welcome in government offices before announcing that he was stopping all communication with them so there. How serious is this and is there more to come from a leader who openly admires Hungary's abrasive Prime Minister Viktor Orban? Monocle's Alexei Korolov reports, reports rather, from the Slovak capital, Bratislava. It's a v ktorej kľúčovú úlohu zohrávajú televízia Markíza, denníky Sme a N a portál Aktuality. Robert Fitzo doesn't like journalists. Or rather, he doesn't like one particular kind. Those that, to quote his recent Facebook post, express hostile political opinions. 
and this again from Fitzo's Facebook, until these hateful liars start telling the truth, he won't talk to them. I have to admit that we are used to uh, live in conditions like this already. It's not a surprise. It's not the first time that Mr. Fitzo is threatening media. Matos Kostolny is chief editor of Denik N, one of the four news outlets blacklisted by Fitzo. And we started nine years ago and we are completely dependent only on our subscribers. We have 72,000 subscribers. That makes us really feel free and not dependent on any political party or state or company. Mr. Fitzo is not answering our questions for years already because he hates us uh, because of all the stories uh, we, we brought in last years, stories about his uh, crony system, mafia system. So therefore he, he feels that we are enemies. We got used on it and we find ways how to survive or how to do our stories without his comments. Uh, and now he, he's not answering questions of Denigen, uh, Denik uh, or Daily Sme, uh, Actuality.sk, and now the new thing is that he's not answering even questions of uh, Television Markiza. Television Markiza is the biggest television in the country, and this is something new and kind of um, very strange to me. Not only that, Fitzer also wants to break up the country's national radio and TV broadcaster, RTVS. And they want to split it into two companies or two organizations. And the reason is uh, they want to change the director general so they have influence, direct influence on their broadcasting. So there is a huge discussion now. And yet, despite Fitzer's threats, independent journalists have been able to attend government functions this week. At the Slovak Parliament, too, it's business as usual. This is media gallery. Yes, this is a media, and also also the public can go here. So journalists usually sit here. It's us there. Mm-hmm. This, this segment on the left the, side. Yeah, yeah. I sit in the first row as always. Uh-huh. I was the first row. Okay. Martin Dubici is leader of the parliamentary group of Progressive Slovakia, a liberal party that finished a surprising second in the general election in September. It wasn't invited to join Fitzo's coalition government. Uh, Robert Fitzo has a you know a long track record of being in a constant fight with journalists, and as with other populists uh, around the world, he needs to have enemies. But at the same time, luckily, it seems like the most of the things that are said are only you know barks and not bites. So he tries to forbid journalists from the government office, but at the same time, the other ministries and the parliament said that they will do nothing of that sort. So it's more of like a personal grudge that he has, and it's also seems really childish. In, in a way, okay, I hate this media, this media, this media. You can see it's like a personal issue for him. Uh, but of course, you know, the perception is that uh, you know, Slovakia, with the election of Fico, him being prime minister again and threatening to restrict media, that it's moving closer to Hungary and going into that camp. But from what you've been saying, I gather that it's really just rhetoric, just words and not action. Well, it's possible. I mean, it's, I would not say that it's, it, it could never happen, but I would say that there's an appetite but not every member of the coalition is, is so eager on going to the eastern direction. There are also politicians in the governing coalition that are more, you know, would like to have a more western perspective and they would like to be friends with the social democratic parties of Western Europe. So it's not as, you know, Orban in Hungary is governing with a full majority or anything. That It seems like it will be a more complicated right for them and we in opposition will do, you know, everything to make this right the hardest as it can be. Yeah.
There are doubts about how far Fitzer is prepared to follow through on his rhetoric. One minute he repeats the Kremlin line that Ukraine is overrun with Nazis. The next he attends an EU summit in Brussels, where he agrees with the EU's official position on the war. But one thing seems certain. Fitzer's government is bad news for journalists. For Monaco in Bratislava, I'm Alexei Korolev. Thanks, Alexi. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Isabel Hilton and Steve Kinane. Today's show was produced by Vincent McAvenny and researched by Harrison Warlock. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. 